0: bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Steve Bonta filling in for my colleague, uh, Paul Dragu, who's our usual host. He'll be joining us from CPAC later in this program today. Uh, We're glad you can join us. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos are considered children under state law. The John Birch Society's constitutional scholar Joe Wolverton will discuss why the solution to unconstitutional federal overreach is not to change the Constitution, but to obey the one we now have. And, as we mentioned previously, Paul Dragu joins us from CPAC. You'll not want to miss his on-the-scene report. But first, following New York Judge Arthur Engeron's $355 million fine handed down against Donald Trump last week, New York State Attorney General Letitia James Who ran for office primarily on a pledge to get Trump, announced that she intends to confiscate Trump's assets, including New York City skyscrapers, if the former president is not able to either pay the fine or pony up the equivalent amount to post as bond pending an appeal. Trump is also being charged more than $80,000 per day interest and has been given one month to cough up the money. Considering that the crimes Trump and his associates have been charged with are victimless and arbitrarily defined. And all of the banks Trump supposedly defrauded by overvaluing his assets were paid back with interest and are also eager to do business with Trump again, it is very clear that the entire affair is a literal modern-day witch hunt, complete with the same sort of victimless crimes and oppressive punishments typical of medieval witch trials with Engren and James playing the roles of ignorant superstitious inquisitors determined to affix guilt to people they have already tried and convicted in the court of their own petty, narrow-minded grudges. Now, Trump, for his part, pointed out that the absurd charges and fine handed down are clear violations of the Eighth Amendment, which was designed precisely to prevent what we now call lawfare. The Eighth Amendment, which is lifted almost word for word from a provision in the English Bill of Rights, states that, quote, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted, unquote. The imposition of excessive fines was a favorite trick of the English monarch James II to destroy his political enemies and is being used now by Trump's enemies in the Biden administration and in New York and Georgia for precisely the same purpose. And millions of Trump haters in the United States are cheering them on, completely ignorant of the ways that lawfare was used in the past to augment tyrannical rule. And we might add that Trump has been systematically stripped of most of his other rights in the course of the New York trial including the right of attorney client privilege, and another right protected by the Bill of Rights, the right to a trial by jury. Instead, he is being held to account by a partisan judge under a New York statute for which a jury trial has been ruled out. And the result, as it was for many Englishmen in the 17th century who dared to defy the king, is a ruinous, cartoonishly one-sided judgment against Trump by a modern Inquisition determined to destroy him. This is what you get when the law is perverted from an instrument of impartial justice into an instrument of revenge. Joining me today is New American Senior Editor, or not Senior Editor, Editor-in-Chief, Gary Benoit, my boss, longtime mm-hmm. colleague and friend. And so, Gary, I mean, in addition to the Eighth Amendment, which we mentioned, it could also be maintained that Trump's First Amendment, right to freedom of speech, has been stripped away in the, in the process of this trial with, with, with anger and imposing gag orders on Trump and on his legal team you know punishing them for effectively speaking their minds uh, and also of course the 5th amendment which ostensibly protects people against having their property taken away from them without just compensation okay and without being subject to life, life of, uh, loss of life liberty and property without due process so all of these things in addition to the very very flagrant violation of the 8th amendment which is the prohibition against excessive fines. Um, You know, this whole thing is an absolute constitutional charade. The law in question that's being invoked has never been used in this way before. This is an absolute legal novelty. Are we headed down the same road as the English monarchy back in the day? I
2: think absolutely. And of course, you made that that point, Steve, in your own comments. Uh, It's really eerie, isn't it? But... You know, if there's a, a silver lining to this, as I, I mentioned uh, uh, in an earlier program, uh, is the fact that it's so blatant, it is so in-your-face, how can people not see it? Well, maybe people cannot see it if, if, they, are, uh, if they are practically terminal, terminally ill with uh, Trump, uh, Trump uh, derangement syndrome. Uh, but for the rest of us, it is just so blatant. And hopefully that sends a, a message to people that we are using losing our freedoms, that the, if they can go after the President of the United States of America this way, uh, the former President, why, Steve, can, that, can they not go after you? Why can they not go after me? Why can they, Why can they not go after everyone else? And if we don't get involved and do everything that we can to save our freedoms, we're going to lose them. And it's really that simple.
1: Okay, well, you know, and, and maybe if, if, if we could afford some grounds for optimism, let's look at the history of England mm-hmm. back in the 17th century, in the mm-hmm. 1600s. Okay, so there had been an unprecedented um, popular uprising against the king, which end, uh, ended up with roughly 16 years of, of an attempt to set up a republic in England, presided mm-hmm. over by Oliver Cromwell. It was a very unstable time. It was sort of like January 6th on steroids. It went on and on. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knew what they were doing. And the end result was that they restored the monarchy. For a time. Now, when James II came to power, his perception was that all the enemies that had created the conditions that led to the overthrow and beheading of Charles I and then the, the, the setting mm-hmm. up of the short lived so called Republican government in England, it was all the fault of the Protestants. Okay, so there's a little bit of a religious dimension there. And he made a conscious effort to, to, to sort of reestablish Catholicism as the official you, you know, church. Uh, so that, he was motivated by primarily religious things. He went after all of his enemies who were prominent Protestants, and he used this lawfare, okay? The right. same sort of thing. He used these, you know, what are called bills of attainder, for example, sure. which is something also prohibited by the Constitution, where you where you completely circumvent due process. And of course, it was
2: not called lawfare back then,
1: but, but no. uh, you're making good points, the Dave, thing because, though, but, 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 but but that's exactly what yeah. it was. Right, it, it was. And, and, you know, so he, he was imprisoning and even executing <clears throat> right. uh, all, all, all of these people. For being, you know, prominent Protestants and so forth. Anyway, there were different times in that regard. But right. here's what I'm leading up to: all of the things got so bad, and it, it led to, for example, um, the, the beheading of a prominent English patriot named, named Alg- Algernon Sidney in 1693. And mm-hmm. five years later, the people of England had had enough, and they had a revolution. Okay, which they call the Glorious Revolution. Glorious because it was virtually bloodless. Now it was accomplished by effectively inviting a man named William of Orange, mm-hmm. okay, who happened to be married to the sister of James II, so that, and they said, you know, why don't you come over from Orange, which was part of the United Provinces in Holland, come over here, you can be our king, and depose this character that we have at the same time. So he actually crossed the channel of the big army, and people received him rapture, there were no battles fought, walked into London, and then the, the British said, okay, we want you to be a king, in fact, you can be our king and queen, you and your wife, but here's what you need to do you need to henceforth you know admit the the sovereignty of the people sign this thing that we're going to call the English Bill of Rights which included a provision almost word for word the same as the 8th amendment by the way right. okay? and so that was the really the tipping point where 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 the england decisively renounced the monarchical monar- model of government the monarchy after that time was greatly diminished in power and the parliament in effect it ultimately, the system with prime ministers and so forth became ascendant. Right. Okay. And of course, the Eighth Amendment, right. Steve, uh, you, uh,
2: that you referred to, uh, that is the one that has the phraseology about not imposing excessive fines. Right. And right. here we have a situation with uh, uh, Donald Trump, where nobody was harmed as a result of his business dealings. Uh, you know, they claim he overvalued his property, but you're dealing with mega banks uh, that certainly were able to. Uh, look at the value of this property and decide uh, uh, that this was uh, a fair deal for them. They they made money on it, uh, no harm whatsoever. And then he's fined three hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, is if that is not an excessive fine, what else is it? And well, obviously if- it's political. Obviously it's designed to destroy. Donald
1: Trump. Well, and they're going after a lot, more you know, a lot, you know dozens of other people oh, who sure. are in his orbit of influence and so mm-hmm. on. So. so, I mean, you know, and the national outrage over this is palpable, just as it would have been in, in England, you know, in the 1690s. That was the era that produced John Locke and all this other stuff. Um, the key is, though, that, that, that England managed to, they realized that the enormity of their situation and they managed to get out of it and reform without going into some hor- sort of calamitous civil war and... All, all this kind of thing which people are talking about today. So this, this affords hope to me that we can find a way to ultimately get rid of these people, reform the system as needed, and re the Constitution and the limits on government power, rein in these rogue judges, you know, the, the, these inquisitors that we have running the show. Anyway, well, next up, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that anyone who destroys a frozen embryo can be held liable for violating the state's
0: wrongful death of a minor act. In 1988, the John Birch Society produced a documentary so predictive, it's as though they had a time machine. Out of Control, Immigration Invasion was produced and hosted by investigative reporter William F. Jasper and looks at the growing problem of unrestricted illegal immigration that, in 1988, already saw upwards of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens within the borders of the US. Unknown agents from around the world using the southern border as easy entry. Certainly some are innocent families escaping hardship, but also certainly some are criminals, potentially terrorists. Is it not appropriate that there be some criteria for the entry of any sovereign nation? Why should the U.S. be different than Canada, Germany, Russia, Japan, or every other country on the planet? Out of control, immigration invasion. Watch this time capsule of prescient wisdom at the slash out of control. Welcome back,
1: everybody. Well, Yesterday, we posted at the newamerican.com our exclusive hour-long interview with Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Here's another excerpt.
3: Well, I'd say the Democrats are really the party of lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lie about everything. They say they're for women's reproductive health care, but that really is for abortion. They say that they're the party for women, but yet they're the party for putting men in our sports and replacing us. Uh, they say that they're the party that cares about children, but they're the party that is for uh, gender-affirming care, transitioning children, puberty blockers, and cutting off their breast and their and their genitals. Um, the Democrat Party claims that they're for peace, but yet they're not. They're for these foreign wars, perhaps more than Republicans are, that's for sure.
1: Go get a Marjorie. Now, in the meantime, be sure to go to the newamerican.com to watch the full hour, one-hour-long interview. Now to our next story. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos are considered children under state law. Specifically, they are extra-uterine children, and anyone who destroys them, whether willfully or by accident, can be held liable for violating Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act. The justices cited both the Alabama Constitution and the 1872 state law determining that the ability of parents to sue over the death of a minor child quote, applies to all unborn children regardless of their location, unquote. The decision came about because of two wrongful death cases brought in 2021 by three couples, each of whom had frozen embryos that were accidentally destroyed at a fertility clinic. They sued that clinic, the Center for Reproductive Medicine and the Mobile Infirmary Medical Center Hospital. Their embryos had been destroyed when a hospital patient somehow accessed the cryogenic appliance that held the embryos and then drop them on the floor. The cases involved wrongful death, negligence, and breach of contract charges. The couple's attorneys noted that Alabama law recognizes that human life begins at conception. Attorneys for the clinic and hospital claimed that Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act does not cover embryos outside the womb. A lower court had dismissed the wrongful death charges, but the Supreme Court disagreed and said that couples can sue for wrongful death in such cases. The justices reasoned, quote, The wrongful death of a minor act is sweeping and unqualified. It applies to all children, born and unborn, without limitation. It is not the role of this court to craft a new limitation based on our view of what is or is not wise public policy. That is especially true when, as here, the people of the state have adopted a constitutional amendment directly aimed at stopping courts from excluding unborn life from legal protection." The justices cited the Alabama Constitution, which says in Section 36.06 that each person is made in God's image and that every life has an incalculable value that, quote, cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God, unquote. They went on to say that, quote, Section 36.06 recognizes that this is true of unborn human life, no less than it is of all other human life, that even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory, unquote. The court's references to Almighty God sent the anti-Christian element among both major and alternative media into orbit. After calling Alabama's Supreme Court justices mentally deranged for citing the sanctity of life, here's what Cenk Uyghur of the Young Turks had to say. So when you start talking about your religion, you're by definition wrong. That is, your religion in America as a judge does not rule the rest of us. That's super obvious. If you write that in there, you're basically saying, I don't give a damn about the US Constitution. I don't care that this is a secular republic. I basically hate the idea of America and I don't like your guys religions or your lack of religion. And I don't like your stupid opinions about your stupid spirituality. My religion and my interpretation of it wins. So I'm going to write a bunch of gobbledygook about an invisible guy that you can't see giving orders that no one hears, and I'm going to make that the law of the land. However, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley defended the Alabama high court's decision.
2: I mean, embryos to me are babies. So I mean, those created through IVF. I mean, I had artificial insemination. That's how I had my son. So when you look at, you know, one thing is to have Um, to save sperm or to save eggs. But when you talk about an embryo, you are talking about, to me, um, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that.
1: Major media also claimed the ruling has dire consequences for IVF, i.e. in vitro fertilization treatment in the future. The state of Alabama's Medical Association filed a brief that read, quote, the potential detrimental impact on IVF treatment in Alabama cannot be overstated. The increased exposure to wrongful death liability as advocated by the appellants would at best substantially increase the costs associated with IVF. More ominously, the increased risk of legal exposure might result in Alabama's fertility clinics shutting down and fertility specialists moving to other states to practice fertility medicine, However, arguing for the plaintiffs before the Supreme Court, Attorney General David Wardus addressed these concerns, saying this,
3: We're here advocating on behalf of the plaintiffs who are supporters of in vitro fertilization. It worked for them. They have two beautiful children in each family because of in vitro fertilization. The notion that they would do anything to hinder or impair the right or access to IVF therapy is flat wrong. That's not why we're here. What we're advocating is If you're in the business of helping create embryonic children, you better also be in the business of safeguarding and protecting them, locking the doors. When you go to the infirmary and you see babies in the maternity ward, you see them with grandma and grandpa and the children waving, they're behind a locked door and protected glass. Same should happen with unborn embryonic children.
1: Nevertheless, on Wednesday the University of Alabama at Birmingham's Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility announced that it will be halting IVF services because of, quote, the potential that our patients and our physicians could be prosecuted criminally or face punitive damages for following the standard of care for IVF treatments, unquote. Does that mean that standard of care for IVF treatments needs an overhaul anyway after all? How did a patient at the Mobile, Alabama, hospital access a cryogenic apparatus and come into possession of the embryos in the first place? Well, you know, there's a lot to unpackage here, Gary. But, I I mean, first of all, just addressing the the so-called point made by that loutish leftist libtard, (laughs) Cenk Uyger, to the effect that, oh, well, you know, if you enforce any moral code whatsoever, right to life, you're violating my religion because my religion says otherwise. Isn't that—I mean, this this is— it hardly needs to be to well, be put down, should, this, this old be, confusion between sectarianism on the one hand and religion right. or religious values writ large on the other. But it should be self-evident, regardless, that our laws
2: should be based on religious principles. How about a law? Not that, according to the left. Well, how about a law that uh, thou shalt not kill? Uh, isn't that based on a religious uh, principle If we outlaw murder, for example? Or how about that we should not steal? Is that not based on religious principle as well? So if we're not going to base our laws on religious principles, what are we going to base those laws on? Should we base them on man's laws? And, uh, and does that mean that that man is, uh, is perfect, that he's infallible? And does that mean that uh, if it's okay to follow the law of the jungle, uh, then that becomes the the law of the land.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, yeah, you know, people don't think this through. But the, the but the bottom line is this: there is no such thing as a moral system mm-hmm. that is created in vacuo. Okay. I mean, and mor- morality comes and culture writ large come in the first place from religion. So this idea that we can completely expunge all religiosity and all the, the moral system flowing there from from public life is is fatuous. Right. Okay, it 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 it, and it's 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 a it's an artifact of minds, frankly, that have been darkened by radical secularism. People that 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 themselves really don't believe in God, or if they do, it's a very convenient type of God that certainly doesn't impose any serious strictures on people that we need to obey. This kind of thing. It's also
2: a complete uh, misrepresentation of the Constitution. the phraseology "separation of church and state" is not in the Constitution. Of course not.
1: Yeah, and this is—I mean, we could go on and on, but I mean, I mean, this 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 is just absurd, and you know. But almost a dozen states already have defined personhood as beginning at fertilization. Of course, the left is going to scream and yell because for 50 years, they had it their way, thanks to Roe v. Wade and, you know, enforced from, from the top down. Next up, constitutional scholar Joe Wolverton will discuss why the solution to unconstitutional federal overreach is not to change the Constitution, but to obey the one we have now.
0: Hey, America. How tired are you of mainstream corporate media's biased narratives and manipulated news? Their dishonesty and attempts to influence this generation have been exposed, put on display for anyone who's even half paying attention. But the new American magazine has been an honest source of news and commentary for over 50 years. This is your opportunity to receive the stalwart of principled journalism at a deep discount. Picture a beautifully published magazine arriving at your doorstep twice a month, packed with insightful stories written with integrity. It's also available digitally on The New American's mobile app. Get up to speed with intelligent coverage from a freedom perspective. Right now, for a limited time, The New American is available to radio listeners at a 25% discount on a new subscription. Visit thenewamerican.com radio25 and receive 25% off. Subscribe today at the newamerican.com/radio25
4: The New American has just released our latest bookazine, a collection of articles on self-reliance. It's called Self-Reliance: Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and without the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. In this polished collector's edition, we have articles on a number of important topics including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst case scenario, firearm self-reliance, building a wood shack, and the importance of community among many other topics. Now the authors of the articles are experts in their fields. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order your copy at thenewamerican.com forward slash shop, or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. However you do it, Make sure you get your copy of Self-Reliance, the Foundation of Freedom.
1: Welcome back, everybody. So for this segment, we're going to be talking with uh, our top constitutional expert, uh, Joe Wolverton, about a subject that we like to talk about a lot and that we, we want you to have a better understanding of, which is the issue of constitutional conventions and also this thing that, that, that's being brooded about lately, the idea of a conference of the states. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve, thank you for having me on. So, for starters, let me just ask a very, I think, a very basic question, and that is, um, you know, what is a constitutional convention, and what, if anything, is are, is or are the differences between a CONCON or constitutional convention and this convention of states that we keep hearing about in the news?
5: Well, traditionally, a constitutional convention was defined as a convention which is held according to terms provided in the Constitution. So it would be a constitutional convention. And the Convention of States people obviously will stipulate that they're calling for a convention. And they're calling for a convention, which is provided for under Article Five of the Constitution. Therefore, it is a constitutional convention. Just as we would say any act of Congress that falls within the boundaries of their constitutional authority would be a constitutional act. And likewise, when it comes to conventions, there have been historically conventions which were held that were not set out in a constitution. And those were called extra constitutional or sometimes unconstitutional conventions. And these were often revolutionary in in an attempt to change the government, uh, the states or the component parts of a confederation would come together to set up a new government. And historically, those were called extra-constitutional or revolutionary conventions. But in the case of the convention being proposed by the Convention of States and other organizations, it is most certainly a constitutional convention because the entire proposal is born out of Article 5, which is a constitutional provision. It makes no sense. They often say, if you watch the videos – or uh, COS and others, they'll say, despite what you may think, because at the beginning, they're asking you to put a pause on what is common sense, because a convention being called to alter the Constitution, that is the AL part of the word Constitution, ref, constitutional refers to the Constitution,
1: Okay, so so, so if I could just stop you there. So just yeah. stop you
5: there for a second. So so okay, the,
1: the implication here is, well, first of all, your state they're, they're the same thing, A, and B, that they're not something that we want. A lot of people out there now contend that the system is broken, referring to the political system and, and in particular the federal government and the relationship between the federal government and the states and all all that, everything that was that was brokered at the original Constitutional Convention and, and laid out in our constitutional system that we have in our federal republic, so people are saying, "Well, we need to do a major overhaul of the system
5: because it's broken; it no longer works." What's your response to that? Well, the founding fathers anticipated that there could come a day when such uh, such declines would occur, and they provided for that in the Tenth Amendment. First of all, there's there the description of the fact that if there is an an act of Congress, which is not provided for in the enumerated powers, that the states and the people retain that power. So the 10th Amendment authorizes, if nothing else did, the 10th Amendment explicitly authorizes the states to refuse to cooperate, in James Madison's words, with any unconstitutional act of the federal government. Furthermore, the the simple historical fact of how the Constitution came to be reveals that the federal government was created as an agent to serve the purposes of the states. And therefore, if the agent ceases to serve the purposes of the states, then the states have the right to change that, to refuse to cooperate with acts of its agent, which only makes sense. Again, it's very commonsensical. The states created the federal government. To perform a few, very few, defined, enumerated duties. If the federal government exceeds those few and defined powers, as listed in the contract that we call the Constitution, then those acts are, as Hamilton said, null and void and of no legal effect. So what you're it's saying is, that. what you're
1: saying is that we don't need to resort to anything so radical as changing the Constitution itself, but merely enforcing its policies, including. States, in effect, nullifying edicts, laws, regulations emanating from the federal government that are deemed not pursuant to the Constitution and the very, very explicit limitations that it places on federal power. The problem is, of course, that a lot of people, you know, some probably well-meaning but misinformed, others not so well-meaning who who hate the Constitution, want an excuse to jettison parts of it that they deem most noxious to the enactment of their Radical agenda, like the Second Amendment and other parts of the Constitution, that have, have historically stymied what we now call the so-called radical, you know, the radical left. Um, and so this is why we oppose the idea of a constitutional convention because the politics today are not the same as the politics in the 1780s, and it would and the outcome would likely be very different. Um, we probably don't have time to go into great detail about this, but um, Joe, let me just ask a two-prong question. To finish up here, first of all, what would be the likely outcome if a convention of states or constitution convention call it what you will, were to be successfully convened? And how do we, what sort of resources do we have to help inform citizens to 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 fight against this in their respective state legislatures? because that's where that's the key to to making sure this doesn't happen. Right.
5: Well, the answer to the first is the outcome is unpredictable because as you as you said, the personalities that would attend a convention today are hardly the caliber of individual that attended that convention in 1787. You know, instead of James Madison and George Washington, can you imagine Hillary Clinton and Gavin Newsom? And something that you'd need to do is read Federalist 40, where James Madison admitted that they exceeded their authority, but he did it for what was the good of America. Imagine, you know, James Madison, how he defines what was good for America, and what Gavin Newsom or Hillary Clinton would define as good for America? Can you imagine that difference? It, we would, as you know, as uh, Barry Goldwater said, we'd walk out of that convention with a constitution unlike the one we've had for over two hundred years. It would be unrecognizable, he said. And I agree. Help? As for the tools, as for the tools, we have two new uh, resources that are provided through the John Birch Society: a sixteen-page digest which lays out in bullet point form all of the arguments against calling a convention of states and then we have a 70 page book which goes into more detail on each one of those points and the and it's just new approaches to this uh, old argument because that's what we need steve we need people to think fresh about this and realize that there are there's an innumerable arsenal of weapons that we can deploy against those who would scrap our Constitution by way of a convention of states.
1: Yeah, thanks, Joe. Well, I mean, and also, I mean, it bears mentioning, you know, that people should read, here's here's a copy of Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and so forth uh, that, that we that we printed up. And, you know, it starts with understanding the fundamentals of the Constitution itself. Part of the reason that this is gaining footage, this, uh, this uh, excuse me, gaining ground, this idea, that we, sh- that we need to change the Constitution, that people don't understand what the Constitution is in the first place and what its provisions are and what the country would look like if, our, if we held our leaders, our federal leaders, to account for it. So we really need to, we need to promote more. People need to, first and foremost, read Absolutely. the Constitution and learn what's in there. Thank you so much, Joe. You, just to clarify, the tools that Joe mentioned are not available yet, but will be very soon. Will be in print very soon. Okay, next up, Paul Dragu joins us from CPAC. You'll not want to miss his on-the-scene report.
0: Self-reliance. It's not a phrase we hear much in our culture these days. It might conjure up images of pioneers, the West, rifles, strapping men, and strong women. But what does it mean for us in today's world? The New American Magazine has just released its latest collector's edition, Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. In it, the New American authors outline the necessity of self-reliance for a free people, tips for self-reliant living, and the importance of not giving up hope. This unique edition includes articles on the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearms, financial self-reliance, the importance of community, and many other topics by expert writers. Now, for a limited time, the New American is offering a bundle of three collector's editions, self-reliance, the Great Reset and Trump World for just nineteen ninety-five—a great stocking stuffer. Available at shopjbs.org. Visit shopjbs.org today.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Okay, so we're going to go to CPAC today and talk with uh, with our man Paul Dragu, who is on site, and he's going to share with us some of what's going on in the first full day of CPAC. Hey, Paul, how are you?
6: Well, I'm here at CPAC. Steve and um, it's a lot, a lot of excitement a lot of hubbub uh, as you can just see I was I had to shoo someone away there uh, you know they were trying to converse with us and whatnot so it's been wonderful we have the John Birch Society here uh, we have booths downstairs we're on media row right now but uh, everyone started getting in about yesterday and you can just see it the, the excitement uh, uh, the, of the event here and uh, the John Birch Society is excited to be here in the new American uh, we're just we're gonna do our best here to help people uh, uh, realize what what the truth is about some of these issues there's a lot of uh, uh, like I said there's a lot of excitement out here and I'm a little uh, uh, overwhelmed here
1: right I can imagine so it, 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 it sounds like you're a bit of a celebrity in the early going that, that's good to hear you you said you already had one interview today yes yes we spoke to
6: the national director the national field director that's john Trock of the jvs uh, they had just had a victory out in indiana on the ConCon. Con. so we did an interview with that we should be rolling that out uh soon uh, i also met a lot of one thing i've noticed steve and that's been very encouraging is i've met quite a few young folks uh here i spoke with uh a representative from the Young Americans for Freedom uh, earlier, and I think we're going to interview him, and he told me a very interesting story about how he came to be, you know, semi-red pill, how he came to uh, to turn to conservatism in a way. Uh, He talked about his experiences at college, and that's kind of where he started to see the insanity of what's happening, and that kind of spurred him. Uh, I also met a group from the University of Georgia uh, yesterday as we were getting ready, picking up my credentials. I had my Georgia hat on, uh, my dog's hat, and and they they noticed me and they gave me a holler out. And, you know, I talked to them. And what I had learned was that there the were a group of them had organized a trip up here to see back, a group, I guess, of Republicans at the university and whatnot. And and so we have, again, conversations there. And so so there seems to be, I, at least on my part, there seems to be a theme of of younger people who are um, who are realizing uh, you know the value of conservative uh, values and principles and things like that, and and there's there's quite a number of them. So that's been one of the more encouraging things here. Not that uh, there's been a lot of encouraging things here, but that's been one of the the most that I've seen.
1: No, I love always love a good conversion story. I mean, speaking as someone who was once a young liberal myself and and went through that whole red pilling process decades ago, it's it's encouraging to see that that's still that it still has an appeal for for young people. So I, I look we look forward to hearing. You know more. Hey, Paul. What about the layout there? Um, you, we, we have. A, I understand there's a couple of booths. The the New American and JBS. You were saying are side by side. Can you give us some idea of, of what it, what it looks like there?
6: Yes. Uh, well, like you said, they're they're side by side, um, and uh, they're right over there. They're in the main area with uh, lots of other booths. There's all sorts of, of vendors and and activist groups here. Uh, judicial watches here uh there's a few uh legislators and candidates and whatnot but like i said they're they're right next to each other it's causing a little bit of confusion but uh, our senior editor uh, veronica karolinko she's down in the new American, so we're going to be rolling out she has booked uh, there's several good interviews that we're going to be rolling out uh she's talking to some very amazing folks and i don't want to give it away uh because uh uh, i I don't want to blow uh blow the surprise there but we got quite a few uh very exciting folks that we'll be talking to and so uh, there's there's a lot coming that
1: folks yeah. would be expecting. Yeah, quite a, f- quite a few A-listers, so to speak, in, in, in conservative circles. And we're going to be sharing these interviews with you online, but also integrating them in the part of the show, particularly tomorrow. It'll take some time. Most Many of the interviews will be happening t- later today and tomorrow, so we aren't able to put them on today's show, but you will be seeing them tomorrow and thereafter. And... Uh, you know, this is this is so we're really excited to see what, what what you what you come up with. So, what what is the overall atmosphere like, Paul? I mean, is there given right now the state of our country, the lawfare, the talk of you know civil war, the border, all these things, you know, nuclear war that have people concerned, and of course the potential for who knows what this this, this critical election year? Would you characterize the atmosphere from what you can sense so far as being optimistic or pessimistic or, I mean, what, what, what do you see? Or what are you overhearing?
6: Well, I've only been here for a <clears throat> couple of hours. It just kind of officially started yesterday. But I would characterize it as uh, it's, it's it's exciting and it doesn't seem depressing at all. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, folks are, are, are connecting, they're networking. Uh, they all have, everyone's got a uh, shtick. You know, everyone's got something they're working on. And so when the folks that I talk to um, there does there isn't a lot of it, I, I didn't i don't sense any hopelessness or anything like that it's a matter of the folks that we've been talking to they're they're too busy and they're too taken in with what they're working on to uh to illustrate any sense of hopelessness or anything like that so uh, i would characterize it as you know optimistic and exciting that's that's what it feels like here
1: this is your 1st CPAC, correct <laughs>
6: It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. We've been. is. Uh, I've been to other types of conferences, those with the Texas GOP a few years back and whatnot. There's obviously some some similarities and whatnot, but this is my first pack, so I, I guess I'm one of the ones that are excited, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: So for our listeners' sake, I mean, Paul is, is a Georgia boy. He was pretty much raised in Georgia after immigrating from Romania as a boy. And you've also lived in Montana, correct? And, of course, now That's you right. live in Wisconsin. Is this your first trip to the belly of the beast, to Washington, D.C.?
6: It is. It is. Absolutely. And I, I got to say, I, I mean, based on where we are, we're here in the Gaylord and we're staying across in, in this area. And I got to say that the area, see, they really um, it's very well run. It's it's well manicured. Security's tight. You know, it's like Oh, oh something interesting happened last night. Uh, we went to, out to eat. And it seems like the kind of thing that only maybe happens in D.C. But someone had reserved an entire block of restaurants um, for for some sort of party or whatnot, they had security all over at the doors. And in, 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 unless you were part of this group or whatnot, like you couldn't enter, enter those restaurants. And it's like three or four restaurants. So I, I was telling, cause I was out with my wife and I was like, maybe that's the kind of thing that happens only in DC, uh, you know, where someone decides to reserve an entire, not just a restaurant, like a block of them, the, the, the whole block and like had like three or four restaurants. So that was uh, something interesting. But yeah, this is my first time in the belly of the beast and um, uh, I, I, like I said, I've never seen an entire block of restaurants being reserved for a party.
1: Well, may, may, maybe massive political favors were being tra- were being transacted and bribes were being. Con- who knows? <laughs> I mean, you know, we do know that certain restaurants in D.C. are 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 the places where these people meet to conduct their graft. You know, the Biden fa- family and so forth meeting with the Chinese and the Ukrainians and the Russians and all of that and and uh, agreeing. Wink, wink. To, uh to 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 ex- for the for, you know transfer of funds it seems sort of incongruous that you're I mean I was born in Washington DC I've been there many times don't care for the place full disclosure and um it does seem incongruous that you're at this this event with so many decent ordinary people from flyover country from the red States who are you know working to save our country in their their respective ways and you're completely surrounded you know set about on all sides by by this just you know, unexampled levels of corruption and graft, everything that we're seeing in the news is literally unfolding around you. So, yeah,
6: yeah. I mean, I talked I talk to some, uh, there's lots of regular folks. I mean, last night I had a conversation with a guy from from michigan and he was telling me his red pilling story and you know he follows the new americans so he knew who we were and and so we started talking about the oklahoma city bombing which uh you know something that we had i told him we no one covered better than us and whatnot and that's another thing i realized it's all a lot of folks here i you know, they're familiar with the New American. They were either subscribers at one point or another. I've met more people who knew of the John Birch Society than who did it. So it is a bit different in that sense because in other events, um, you know, the John Birch Society uh, was not as well known. Uh, but here at CPAC, it seems like uh, where you have more of the high information people, uh, it seems like most folks know about the John Birch Society the New American, and uh, they're excited to have met us.
1: Yeah, and I think that's indicative, maybe of the changing of the times a bit too, because there was a time when CPAC tried to cater only to Rhino, neocon, Buckleyite, conservatives, so to speak, National Review types, and people like us were systematically excluded. For supposedly being too extreme, and, and this kind of thing, and, and obviously that's changed a great deal. The MAGA movement, doubtless, has a lot to do with that. Well, we'll be back with Paul, and uh, you know, tomorrow, and and so forth. And we can't wait to hear your report when you get back to Appleton. Paul, great talking to you. Good luck out there. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thanks that's for having me. You. Well, thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news, and please join us again tomorrow.